Welcome to In Season, where we explore the farms, gardens, and wild spaces of the Lower Columbia region. I'm Jessica Schleif, one of your hosts, and here with me is Teresa Retzloff, your other host. Thanks for doing that, Jessica. Yeah. It was great. Um, <laughs> I'm feeling a little bit husky with a bit of a cold today. So I told her it's sexy. <clears throat> I think it's just weird. But um, we're going to have Jessica do most of the talking today, <laughs> which is great because we're talking about a subject that I think she really shines in, which is um, establishing uh, native plants, especially herbaceous perennials, perennials in your gardens. Um, I love how you incorporate native plants into the landscape and and include them in so many of your gardens. It's so beautiful. And talk a little bit about how people can do that and why. Maybe why would you want yeah, to establish yeah. this? Yeah, and this is such a good time of year to be thinking about Absolutely. that. And to kind of reflect on the season and think about as we're hiking, as we're driving around, as we're in our um, beautiful park system here in Astoria, we can really... Well, get... throughout the whole region that we live in. Exactly. It's not just Astoria. Oh, it's true. It's true. I just never leave town, so that's all I think about is that story. <laughs> there are many beautiful parks all throughout this region. <laughs> uh, you know, just thinking about what what's in bloom, what's mm -hmm. in season, what's in bloom, what's um, providing fruit or interest or structure at different times of the year, and the native plants. They really shine. I mean, they that's, it I mean, down, don't they? Clearly, they've been here way longer than we have. And they and the interesting thing is that you know as they've evolved, you know, and they bloom at different times of the year. So the the insect population and the birds and wildlife have evolved to look for the food that they exactly. provide yeah. at those times of year. And so, if we want to support that native ecosystem of pollinators and insects and birds and wildlife, we need to make sure that there's interesting things, you know, tasty things for them to eat and gain pollen from and, and provide shelter and structure for them at different times of year. It's true. And in our, I think sometimes people get stuck <clears throat> in our own home gardens thinking that they have to have a whole native plant area mm -hmm. or that their garden has to be strictly natives. Yeah. And that's just not true. No. The, the native plants can work into a Japanese garden. The native plants can work into a messy um, English-style border mm -hmm. uh, or neat English-style border. <laughs> Whichever way you swing. They can, they can work into just about anything. And you don't have to have a huge garden. I mean, some of these plants can become large, but if, you're, if you prune them, you can keep them under control. And then we were talking earlier about how there are um, cultivars that have been bred, you know, that are um, smaller in size. Yeah, I, I think uh, the quince is a great example <clears throat> mm -hmm. of that. Um, mm -hmm. so, yeah. Some of the currants are a great example of that, mm -hmm. um, where our plant breeders have, mm -hmm. have taken the good genes and, and maybe reduced the habit or made it not so aggressive, um, not such mm -hmm. a full-size plant. There's some beautiful quinces on the market these yeah. days. Quince, and we're, and, and we're, on the market. We're talking, <laughs> um, we're talking about just, just um, uh, plant hybridization, plant propagation, plant breeding. This is not genetically modifying these no, plants. No. It's just this is like you know, you know, centuries-old methods of selecting. selecting for different characteristics of plants, and that can be one way to incorporate some of these things. So plants that that provide interest um, throughout the season, because that's the key thing that I've been learning about. If we want to support our native pollinators and 
you know, year-round birds and migratory birds provide things that are good for them in those seasons. And and hopefully this can help us reduce a little bit of the invasive um, things that are showing up in their stead. You know, birds are going to look for berries wherever they are, and um, and they tend to spread them around. And I would way rather they be spreading around things like snowberry evergreen, or evergreen huckleberry than the cotoneaster that is invading my farm, which yeah. I really need to cut back. Yeah. So, you know, there's things like that where providing space for native plants can also help those plants thrive in this in this ecosystem. It's true. Um, <clears throat> being able to have, yeah, those things seeding in your mm-hmm. garden, having the birds carry them around. Um, I, I think often, though, in gardens, we can <clears throat> look at areas that are bordering our neighbors uh, where we might have some space to do a hedgerow, like a mixed border hedgerow mm-hmm. sort of. Um, Can you explain the, the idea of a hedgerow? Because I think it's a, it's a word, it's such a romantic word to me. It is. It feels very, very like English <laughs> and hedgerows. And what does that mean? It's things that you plant in a row. <laughs> that make a hedge. <laughs> that make a hedge, but, no. but traditionally but, they're like traditionally mixed. traditionally it's mixed and, and you're looking at um, just exactly what you're talking about. Uh, extending out your season of interest. Um, having things that are fruiting or flowering in there from early spring, sometimes all the way through the winter, depending Mm -hmm. on what we're planting. It also is a way for some of those plants to knit together Mm -hmm. and form a a habitat for smaller birds. um, Mm -hmm. They like to hide within them. Yeah, exactly, and can be able to hide within those currants, evergreen huckleberries, um, barberries even, mm-hmm. uh, and and be able to be feeding mm-hmm. in there. Um, it, traditional hedgerows would take a maybe a larger tree like an alder or a malice or something like that, and you would plant those every 8 to 12 feet. Mm-hmm. You'd then be coppicing those, and those would become kind of the structure for your hedgerow. Okay, what does coppicing mean? Co- uh, coppicing would mean... Um, I, just, I love this word. Ch- chopping it down. Yep. Chopping it down either to the ground or within the hedgerows. They often do it in an eight-foot section. Many of us don't have the space to do this. Mm-hmm. If we have a farm, if we have a vineyard... Or if, a, just a larger piece of property. Or a larger you know, like one of those like one-acre, two-acre properties yeah. that are often maybe out in some of Then that. you can think about doing a more traditional <clears throat> hedgerowing technique like this. Um, in our urban gardens, you can you can imitate this this hedgerow and still call it a hedgerow, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but with smaller plants. <clears throat> but with smaller plants, things that are size appropriate. And I think that that um, I was just kind of going through some lists this morning. I was looking at the native plants in the coastal garden, a revised and updated version. It's such a great book. <laughs> a guide for gardeners of the Pacific Northwest. Um, yeah, put out on Timber Press. It seems like everything I own is put out on Timber Press. They do some really great books for this region. They do. They do mm-hmm. a great job. And and um, looking at the, looking at this plant uh, plant book last night and this morning and kind of thinking about natives, really thinking about what is your mature height 
Mm-hmm. That's what, always a good thing to look at. It is, and it's something that we bypass so often. <clears throat> and if we have the time to be able to make those choices mm-hmm. and really look at mature heights, which if we're here in this rainforest, we add a little to. Add a little bit to that. Um, and also looking at, at sunshade, really mm-hmm. looking at, at where our um, what the environment is that we're doing the planting for. Um I th- I think that it's really appropriate uh, for you to tell your story about the blue elderberry now and about size, <laughs> because I and this is also really exciting for me because I you know blue elderberries are something that are are valued and treasured here. It's an amazing fruit. People value it for its medicinal qualities. Um, it makes a good cough syrup. <laughs> I know. Like, boy, I wish I had some right now. <laughs> Excuse me, but. I just didn't think that it grew here at the coast. I thought it was more in higher elevations. Yes, and, and same. You know, we have the red elderberry here, which we can still do cordials with the flowers. There's many things that you can do with the berries, but those blue elderberries. I remember, you know, getting up to a certain height on Highway 26 and suddenly having that, you know, one shows up and here the and there. Amazing. Oh, they're so just beautiful. beautiful. And they get um, almost like a waxy white... Yeah, like grapes, like that bloom on grapes. Yes, like that bloom on grapes, which is just gorgeous. And I think about five seasons ago, um, Watershed Gardens. uh, Watershed Garden Works. Watershed Garden Works. Thank you. That's okay. Dixie Dixie, and her husband. (coughs) Scott. Scott. (laughs) We're at a native plant sale here locally. And they had some of these rooted uh, blue elderberry just sticks. Yeah, I think it was five dollars or three dollars for a stick or yeah. something. Sorry, money. Oops. Yeah. Um, anyway, and and went ahead and picked up three of them. There's brought, a lot of faith involved in, in buying a stick in a pot. Well, I had no faith. I I just healed them in in my perennial <laughs> garden, which is a terrace garden in my backyard uh, that has many herbs and and flowers that uh, have edible qualities or different mm-hmm. medicinal qualities and I just popped these sticks in two of them died one of them survived started to kind of take off five years later I have a 12 foot tall <laughs> blue elderberry that's probably eight <clears throat> feet across taking Whoa. over a large portion of that border that's a that's a big plant it is a big plant but oh god so beautiful last year I used the berries to make ink oh. um there there's many syrups there's all kinds of different ways that you can preserve these berries mm-hmm. um the wildlife yeah, I'm sorry loves. about watching the cedar wax wings come in this oh. year. I was like, okay, you guys can have some of those. Anyway, yeah. so it can happen. These blue elderberries. And it's like having a huge bird feeder in your backyard. It is. Even if you never use the berries, it's so beautiful to watch the birds come in and feast on them. Yeah, and I think that's something to. I have to remind myself of. You know, often we have these berries <clears throat> or crab apples or things. I think, oh, I need to use, I need to use, I need... And then you suddenly realize, oh, wait, they are being used mm-hmm. by the wildlife. And I think even when we are making jams or jellies or, or cough syrups or tinctures or different things, thinking about sharing with the wildlife. Absolutely. It's like leaving a, leaving a tithe. 
Yes. <laughs> Leaving a time to I think sure. in the permaculture world, it's 25% yeah. or yeah. something. They break it down. Um, it just ends up happening, I think, sometimes. But it's it's a good way to think about it and a way to feel good about it. If you don't get all of it harvested, it's it's great because you are leaving leaving food out there for wildlife. It's true. With the crab really apples, need. I always love watching the deer and the birds come for the fermented crab apples oh, late in the, in the winter. at Jessica's house. <laughs> yeah, so the elderberries are one I know the... Um, mm-hmm. But that's that's a good example of, you know, you start with this little tiny yes. stick and you don't think about it because it looks so tiny. And then suddenly you have an 8 by 12 foot shrubbery, shrub in your garden. So, so looking at how big is this going to get? Mm-hmm. And then being thoughtful about where are you going to put where it? Because once it? it becomes the 8 by 12 plant, it's a lot harder to move at that point. <laughs> I know. <laughs> then... But then judicious pruning can... Yeah. <clears throat> and many of the natives do take well to pruning. Absolutely. I know the evergreen huckleberries. I've... Mm-hmm. Um, I've done some pretty major pruning. Well, and think on. about it. They're used to being browsed on by by deer and exactly. elk. You know, that's something that they respond to, and they've evolved to be okay with that. And that's those are also really important food sources for deer and elk. You know, having that kind of what, what people call scrub shrub habitat, yeah. which I yeah. love that scrub shrub, scrub, scrub shrub. shrub. But it's that kind of woody you know, sturdier leaf kind of thing. That's also really important for their diet. It's kind of like the roughage and the good vegetables and stuff for wildlife. And they shouldn't just eat grass. I remember someone describing to me that, you know, for deer and elk, if they're just eating grass, it would be kind of like us just eating donuts. You know, you need <laughs> roughage. You need the little woody, yeah, yeah, shrubby stuff out there and the leaves and the berries and the other things provide diversity in, in wildlife diet. And so, again, incorporating these into our gardens, not that I want your garden to be a deer attractant unless that's what you want. <laughs> but so, Sometimes, though, <clears throat> on the border, even if we mm-hmm. have a fence and we're doing a, mm-hmm. a border or a hedgerow on the edges or to screen in between two neighbors, um, mm-hmm. the deer might be grazing from the other side, Yeah, even if it's fenced in. Yeah. And some of the other things that I think can be really beautiful in these mixed borders um the tall organ grape oh it's so the mahonia i have a small wall of this in Mm -hmm. in my back garden and just a beautiful plant Mm -hmm. those waxy leaves the berries are edible yeah Um, it makes a beautiful jelly it makes beautiful jelly the roots can be used for a tincture oh i didn't know that that is kind of our that's our organ version of like echinacea oh interesting i didn't Um, realize that do you have to dig up the whole plant you do have to dig up the whole plant so So you really need to have quite a bit of it somewhere (laughs) so get it established and then like maybe like dig one up every four years exactly or go around the edges and make the tincture interesting um the roots are just vibrant yellow really yeah just an amazing color that's so cool um the red osier dogwoods are one of my favorites to use not just in the hedgerows but as a as a statement plant in your border they are so pretty so this is a plant that's like um just these long red stems and it gets leaves you know it looks kind of like a, a a beautiful shrub throughout most of the year these beautiful big leaves and then in the winter it drops its leaves and you're left with these bright red stems that are just oh oh yeah so do you cut them do you like cut them to the ground so you get the new growth every year it depends on what the what the area is and and because they have a mature size of 
13 feet. Yep. <clears throat> you can cut them to the ground. You can cut them to the ground. Um, you can coppice them, mm -hmm. cut them to the ground, and then have those brand new red twigs come. Or if you're using it in an area where you do want more height, you can under prune it. Yep. You can almost turn it into a, a small tree or yeah. a... But that, it's so pretty in the winter to have that pop of color looking out at you. That yeah, the yellow is, twig dog. And the red, there's, a, yeah, yeah, there's a yellow uh, version of it that's Combining like, oh. those together. Oh, you know, sometimes so I get pretty. my best ideas from the, the wayside gardens that just happen <clears throat> along the highway. Yeah. And those red twig dogwoods on Highway 30, oh. once the leaves start dropping on other things and mm -hmm. they're just like fire out there. It's so beautiful. Really pretty. The Indian plum, mm -hmm. the mock orange. The ocean spray, which I, I really haven't used that that much, but do have in some gardens. Um, I know the red flowering current we talked about, the ruddy yeah. sanguinium, such an early bloomer. Yeah, I feel like it's February yeah. that it starts to bloom. And, you know, now that we have more and more like hummingbirds staying year round, um, I have seen, you know, early hummingbirds hit mm -hmm. that red flowering current mm -hmm. and just... I've seen them fighting over it. Yeah, really territorial. And so having a, a, a large one of those. And it's, you know, th th all of the, the colorful action is in, you know, late winter. But then the rest of the year, it's a beautiful green shrub, you know, and it provides background to whatever else exactly. you have coming along. Exactly. Um, but in that moment, it's so exciting. And it's at a time when... There's not a lot going on mm -hmm. for color, and so having that pop of color and flower in late winter to me, it always makes me feel so hopeful. When yeah. I see that blooming, I'm like, oh, it's coming. And it's really ten coming. But maturity, <clears throat> but takes well to pruning. Mm -hmm. Takes well to pruning, and can be can be kind of not a, a really wide plant. Yeah, and yeah. and again, if that sounds intimidating to you, there has been some some you know plants bred varieties bred to be smaller than that that are also really lovely and bloom early um it's just the native is so beautiful yeah and i just i really love it yeah um yeah. there's some other really interesting currents like the sticky current mm -hmm. and some other ones yeah it's, i mean well worth exploring that family i mean there's some really cool things to add there but you know some of the things that i will intentionally leave if the place is right is a little patch of thimbleberry. Oh, yeah. A, a little patch of um, salmonberry. Though the salmonberry and the Nootka roses, those are just so darn aggressive. They can be, uh, yeah. Yeah. They... If you have the right spot, though, yeah. uh, uh, you know. Like I've got some saying... patches of them starting to establish on our farm that we've intentionally planted for pollinator habitat. And it is really exciting to see them take off. I will say the salmonberry really seems to favor shade yeah. or some shade. It's more of an understory plant, and it really doesn't like to be in, in hot, dry it's true. spaces. Yeah. I've learned that the hard way. But the Nuka Rose seems pretty hardy, and it also gets beautiful rose hips yeah. this time of year. They're small. They're very small rose hips, but they're gorgeous. And again, another food source. Yeah, and, and thinking <clears throat> about um, many some of our other native roses. Mm-hmm. So there's there's some really wonderful things. I love plants like that that provide interest over a long period of time. You get a flower, you get the seed, you get you know rose hips and different um, fruits that happen, and it it's just beautiful um, to see those throughout the year and and fairly low care once they're established. Mm -hmm. Again, the main thing you'd be doing is pruning. Yeah, and and just really thinking about your site though. Mm -hmm. uh, you know the 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 thimbleberries the um salmonberries the, salmon the nutka roses i would not suggest those for a smaller garden no 
though sometimes when something is already established in the back 40, there's yeah. a real nice thimbleberry plant. Yeah. I might take a bunch of it out and yeah. leave a couple of stalks. Yeah. Um, I would say it really depends. I would just as a warning too, Nutka Rose has some pretty amazing thorns. Yeah. Um so, you know, if you're if you if you have a neighbor you don't like and you really <laughs> want to establish <laughs> a fence that that hedgerow, the hedgerow of hostility, that could be a good plan. I think I it's know. just weighing, you know, how much work is the yeah. management going to be. Yeah. yeah. To yeah. Yeah, and that, I mean, that comes back, I think, to, to any kind of garden that you're doing where you want to think about how much time do I have to spend on this. And I think that it's it's kind of a misnomer or, or uh, to think that, like, well, if I plant native plants, they're, you know, they're native to this region. I'm not going to have to do any work to take care of them. And, again, I think if you're, if you're doing it as, like, a habitat planting on a, on a piece of, like, wild land, that's fine. You can just let them go and let them do their thing. But if you're doing this in a small garden – any plant is going to need to be managed in that situation if your if your goal is to have a garden, mm-hmm. you know, meaning like a place that you can actually walk through or maybe have some <laughs> open spaces because they will just take over. And if you want that kind you, of, you, you know, w- thicket of secret yeah. garden, and whatever. You can, and you can, you know, even on a small lot <laughs> or even in a city lot, you can have a section that's fairly wide the back 40 you yeah. know where or uh, the Even side the back 40, 40 inches <laughs> the side 40 yeah. where things can be a little bit more wild and mm-hmm. if you um really think about the matrix of your planting and getting an overstory mm-hmm. in there too yeah even if that overstory is a 15 foot or 20 foot deciduous tree mm-hmm. um even if it's a 12 foot deciduous tree uh, to yeah. to to balance out that ecosystem so that things aren't just taking off yeah full sun all the time because it can also then cause problems later on in the future there it's a lot harder to move those things around mm-hmm. once they're established and so just being thoughtful and thinking about how big is this going to get how much care is it going to take and do I have the time to do that. Um, I mean, those are questions to ask yourself any time I think you're trying to get a garden established or just working with a new garden or trying to rework your garden. Mm -hmm. And I think within reworking your garden, too, really looking at what is working for you and Mm -hmm. are there edits that I can make? And also looking at some of those things that you might have thought of as just a a weed or mm-hmm. that that you know that thing that just popped up. I know that evergreen huckleberries show up in the gardens quite a bit because the birds will spread them. The birds will spread them, and I always just love seeing those little seedlings and mm-hmm. and moving them around when they're small to areas that might be more appropriate. They are beautiful plants, and the berries are delicious. Yeah. Also, the deciduous one is a really nice one too, mm-hmm. and gets a beautiful fall color. Yeah. That can that can definitely be something used in the landscapes, um, not just shrubs though. We can think about ground covers. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the kinnikinics. Oh, kinnikinick oh, is yum. beautiful. It's a low growing, kind of dark green leaves with little red berries on them. It's red berries, yeah. Mm-hmm. Red berries on them. Super pretty. Medicinal qualities. That's um, really nice. That's a beautiful little ground cover, and some of the perennials too. Um, Salal. How do you feel about salal? Yeah, that's still in the shrub zone. I, I rarely mention it. It is a beautiful plant. It just takes over the world. Yeah, if you've does. got a slope, if yeah. you've got a place where you can totally have that, let have it a, go. Let it go. Yeah. Um, but you'll be 
you will never get it out. Yeah. It wants it. I always found that it's very hard to get it established from a plant. It's hard to get it established from a one-gallon plant. Yeah. <laughs> Italy will often die and you have to replant and replant. I learned this when I was doing a lot of habitat restoration planting. Um, Salah was always the trickiest one Yeah, to but get once it gets going, oh, yeah. it can really yeah, take off. Um, the ferns. Oh, ferns are so beautiful. Yeah, like the deer ferns. The licorice fern <clears throat> is mm-hmm. a beautiful one if you have the right environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's some of those herbaceous plants like yarrows. Yeah. And, um, the the Douglas aster. Yeah. Douglas aster. It's Douglas's aster, <laughs> which is very hard to say. Some of the penstemons mm-hmm. too, or the spreading flocks. Um, mm-hmm. I love the sedums. I love the native sedums, mm-hmm. the oregonium and the blanco, and those can really make a beautiful carpet. Yeah. So there's lots of things that you can do looking at native plants, looking at how to incorporate them into your garden, and knowing that they are, you know, native to the Northwest. Maybe not all native to the coast. Exactly. But, yeah. But many of them will grow here, um, given the right garden. And I think it comes back to also understanding your ecosystem. If you live right next to the ocean, there's some things that are going to do great for you that won't do great for someone who lives you know, in the foothills mm-hmm. of the, the coast range. So understand, like, what's going to be appropriate for your There's space. There's some great books out there. I really enjoy this, Native Plants in the <clears throat> Coastal Gardens. Um, another great one is uh, Pacific Northwest Foraging by Douglas Stewart, oh, also on God, Timber Press. This one's a fun one to pair with thinking about some mm-hmm. native plantings. Yeah. Um, to get in and look at the medicinal qualities of various things. Oh, yeah, the lily of the valley. Oh, the, it's so The pretty. wild lily of the valley or wild ginger. Yep. Um, there's some really cool things out there. There's some great <laughs> things. And, I mean, if anything, that blue elderberry proved to me, yeah, go ahead and try. Yeah. If you're at some of these native plant sales and there there's a person right there that is going to have a lot of knowledge that probably isn't going to mind answering questions. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, don't be afraid of trying something new or trying something <clears throat> different. Yeah, it can add so much to your garden. It can provide such great food for wildlife, food for you, mm-hmm. um, interest in your garden, and adaptability, I think, to our region that I think is is very important. Um, A lot of them can become more low water plants once they're established, unless it's a wetland plant, in which case (laughs) you would need a wet area. But that can be great because a lot of us have wet spots in our gardens. And so what are those plants that can do well in a wet area? And there are many that can adapt to that. There's nothing like having a skunk cabbage on your own property. Ooh, yeah, Ooh, that smell. That lantern, Ooh. that beautiful, beautiful you know, lantern. I love the smell of skunk cabbage. I do too. And it I, just smells like spring to me now. Yeah. And I at first, I remember when I first smelled it, I was like, what is that plant? And I totally understand why they call it skunk cabbage. But it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. Mm, love that plant. There's some edible qualities there too. Yeah, the, it's yeah. yeah. So there's one other plant uh, book that we both brought in. Oh yeah, um, oh yeah, yeah. Mm. The the attracting native pollinators, um, protecting Northwest American bees and butterflies. Yeah. Out out on Story Press. Yeah, that's another really great resource. Again, it's, it has it's a more um, national book. It's not mm-hmm. I think just focused. On our region, I don't believe, but um, there are some good books out there. There's some really good resources. I think also I would encourage you to look for volunteer opportunities this winter. 
um, a lot of the, your local watershed council or um, our region's land trusts often have volunteer planting days throughout the winter. Mm -hmm. And that can be a great way to go out and help put you know, plants in the ground, help establish some, some wildlife habitat. Get a little bit closer to an existing Absolutely. habitat. Yeah, and it's a great way to ask questions of people who work with native plants all the time. So if you just want to get a sense of, like, what are these plants that they're talking about? What are some of the plants that, that we're talking about establishing? Look for volunteer opportunities throughout the winter. Also, just a nice hike at Fort Clatsop. Uh, that yep. that uh, sometimes that can be just mm -hmm. so inspirational to yeah. go ahead and look at what is existing in some of these areas where the people from the park have done such a beautiful job yeah. of restorative yeah. planting. There are many, many beautiful parks throughout this, you know, lower Columbia Pacific region. And I think just getting outside, it's so easy to want to just hunker down mm -hmm. and, and be inside this time of year and just, you know, put on your rain gear. <laughs> just Get out be ready there. for There's it. Get outside. Yeah. There's so much beautiful. Take, take a look at the mushroom world. I know. Take a look at what's making berries mm -hmm. right now. Yeah. What are the birds going to? And just be inspired. It's this is such a beautiful region we live in. I feel like just getting out and experiencing it these times of year is so incredible. It's true. I know. It's true. God, Jessica, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge about these plants. Oh, I really Teresa, thank you. It. Thank I, you for really, sharing your knowledge about I, habitat <laughs> restoration. I want to plant a blue elderberry <laughs> really badly. Now, can we propagate I yours? give you a stick. Ooh. I give you a stick. Okay, I'm going to start with a stick. I'm going to see how it goes. I really want one of those and so much else. Anyway, I, I hope that this has inspired you to try some new plants in your gardens. Um, Thanks and, for uh, joining us today. Yeah, we really appreciate yeah. it and hope you're having a good autumn. Cheers. Bye.